Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to the show. I am your host, Nico Perino, and this is So To Speak, the free speech podcast where every other week you and I take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversation. And wow, what a world it has been these past couple of weeks. We're releasing this podcast early so that we can seize on the national conversation surrounding free speech since the events in Charlottesville, Virginia, about a week and a half ago. I'm sure most of you are well aware of what happened on Saturday, August 12th in Charlottesville, but just in case you aren't, let me briefly recap. A group of alt-right white nationalists, white supremacists, whatever you want to call them, rallied in Emancipation Park in order to protest the scheduled removal of a Robert E. Lee statue from that park. They had a permit. They had been coordinating with the police and the city for many weeks. But almost as soon as the rally began, it descended into chaos and violence, violent confrontations between protesters and counter-protesters. The rally was soon declared unlawful, a state of emergency was declared, and this all culminated tragically in the death of one counter-protester and the injuries to many others after a white nationalist allegedly drove his car into a group of counter-protesters. Since then, a lot of think pieces have been written about the so-called limits of free speech, and it's a conversation that we at FIRE here have contributed to as well, and I have contributed to. I co-authored an essay in Politico with FIRE President and CEO Greg Lukianoff called Why Even Nazis Deserve Free Speech, and FIRE Executive Director Robert Shibley also had a piece of his own in USA Today about why police must act fast to protect First Amendment rights. And we've seen the fallout from Charlottesville make its way to college campuses as well, where three universities, Texas A&M, Michigan State, and the University of Florida, have canceled or denied the right for white nationalist Richard Spencer to rent out space on campus that would otherwise be available to off-campus speakers to rent out. We've also seen some municipalities try and cancel alt-right or white nationalist rallies citing concerns of violence stemming from Charlottesville. And there's a concern amongst free speech advocates that this is soon going to let viewpoint-based discrimination slip on by because people are afraid. It's going to be a new in for, quote-unquote, hate speech regulation, Uh, the conflation of hate speech with violent conduct that, of course, is illegal. Uh, People are saying that hate speech will necessarily lead to violence, whereas the courts have said there is no hate speech exception to the First Amendment. But we've kind of discussed all of these issues before, and they say there's nothing new under the sun. These sort of controversies aren't new either. We spoke with Arye Nair, who was the executive director of the ACLU back in the 1970s when the Nazis 
wanted to march on Skokie, Illinois. Skokie, of course, being the home of many Holocaust survivors. And Aryeh Nair, of course, being a Holocaust survivor himself, we asked him during our series on defending my enemy why he chose to defend the rights of neo-Nazis to exercise the right to free speech and the right to free assembly. We also spoke with many other people during that series about why they defended the rights of their enemies. David Baugh, for example, a criminal defense attorney, a black criminal defense attorney, defended the right of members of the Ku Klux Klan to burn a cross on private property. Glenn Greenwald, the famous journalist who helped break the Snowden story a couple of years ago, is a gay Jewish man. Uh, he defended neo-Nazis in his practice when he was practicing law. So to discuss this fallout from Charlottesville, I wanted to bring on another person who has made a name for herself defending the rights of her enemies, and her name is Nadine Strawson. She's written a lot about controversial speakers and speakers at the margins of society, and she wrote a book, I believe in the late 90s or early 90s, about defending pornography, and she has a forthcoming book due out next year called Hate, Why We Should Resist It With Free Speech not censorship. Notably, she is the former president of the ACLU, and the ACLU was very much involved in the controversy in Charlottesville because its Virginia chapter helped the alt-right white nationalist, white supremacist organizers maintain their rally in Emancipation Park after the city tried to move it, citing security concerns. Uh, they helped the organization because the city hadn't cited concrete security concerns that would justify moving the rally and a municipality must cite concrete security concerns in order to justify moving a rally especially when the site of that rally holds symbolic significance as we know as i already mentioned emancipation park was home of the robert e lee statue that was scheduled to be removed that the protesters were protesting and to move the rally away from that park would be to remove the symbolic significance of that rally. So Nadine Strawson uh, is going to come to the defense of the ACLU here in this interview and explain why it's important that an institution like the ACLU come to the defense of all speakers. She was the president of the American Civil Liberties Union from 1991 to 2008, and she was the first ever woman to head that organization. She is currently a professor of law at New York Law School. And since leaving her, her, her presidentship at the ACLU, she has maintained a vigorous uh, speaking schedule. She, you can probably see her at many free speech events or on many free speech panels. Her presidency was highly regarded. Uh, after she left the presidency, there was a luncheon or tribute to her that was attended by three Supreme Court justices, R Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Antonin Scalia, and David Soder. She is a Harvard Law grad, where she was an editor on the Harvard Law Review. And on the day that I spoke with her, that happened to be her birthday. So I wish her a happy birthday here at the beginning of the podcast. We recorded over the phone. I was in Washington, D.C. She was in New York City. So if it sounds like we recorded this over the phone, it's because we did. And without further ado, I'm going to get to our conversation with Nadine Strawson. We were very happy to have her. She 
is a foremost expert on this very important topic. Nadine Strawson, welcome to the show. I'm so delighted to be here. On your birthday, no less. A great way to celebrate freedom of speech. I know, but it's a bit somber because of all that happened in Charlottesville last week, and it seems like it is capturing the headlines and free speech as a result is taking a public relations beating. And so is the ACLU, actually. What is what is your impression of all that has happened over the last, what is it, six days? We're speaking on the f- Friday right now after well, the events. I, I have uh, mixed feelings, but as an activist, I necessarily am a congenital optimist. I see the glass half full. Uh, there is a big half empty there, but, you know, if First Amendment lawyers are fond of paraphrasing great Supreme Court justices who said the answer to speech we hate is not to censor it, but to answer back counter speech. And boy, have we seen counter speech in action. I mean, everything from the president of the United States, much more than he wanted to, isn't it interesting? I mean, too little, too late, but how much pressure he was under, including from so many Republican officials, uh, to military people. I mean, there's, I'm not necessarily saying that's that's great. We've got some concern about civilian control of the military. But the fact that they overcame uh, that concern to express themselves, uh, business leaders, CEOs, uh, spontaneous community gatherings all over the country. I mean, there's been a groundswell of uh, fervent, committed opposition to hatred and discrimination and a renewed commitment to eradicating discrimination and, and violence. So I, I, I think there's a lot of uh, positive momentum that has been generated despite the absence of censorship, or I would say because of the absence of censorship, right? Yeah, so we have... Yeah, we have seen this blossoming of free speech after the events, spontaneous gatherings, as you mentioned, candlelit vigils on the lawn at University of Virginia. But we have seen some people attack free speech principles as if those principles were responsible for the violence that happened in Charlottesville. I'm looking right now at an op-ed in the New York Times, the title reading, The ACLU Needs to Rethink free speech. And that is prompted, of course, by the ACLU's long tradition of uh, not discriminating based on viewpoint on behalf of the the uh, people whose rights it seeks to defend. And the ACLU of Virginia, of course, stepped in to uh, get a court's injunction against the moving of the alt-right rally before it occurred, to which a board member of the ACLU resigned. So how do you feel about that backlash? Uh, It's a backlash that I don't take personally as a longtime president of the ACLU because it is a backlash against the First Amendment itself. And as you alluded to, so we're in good company, right? (laughs) In being attacked. Our fire is also attacked for the same reason. All the time. Um, uh, But what is at stake is what you alluded to. And uh, the Supreme Court has called it the bedrock 
principle of our freedom of speech. Lawyers generally refer to it as viewpoint neutrality or content neutrality. Above all else, the free speech guarantee means that government may not censor or punish any speech because of dislike, disgust, uh, detestation of the message, no matter how deeply the message is reviled and how widely it is reviled, that is not a justification in a democracy where we, the people, make our own choices about what ideas we listen to or don't listen to, express or don't express, uh, accept or reject or, or respond to. And, and that's an essential principle not only for individual liberty, the freedom of the speaker to speak, the freedom of the listener to listen or not, uh, but in a, in a democracy, we the people have the power to make these decisions. Government may not disempower our democratic discourse and debate about these vital public policy issues uh, surrounding race and historic monuments and, you know, many major public issues, history. Um, government may not take those decisions away from us. Well, the argument being made here in this uh, op-ed in the New York Times, the ACLU needs to rethink free speech, is that speech on behalf uh, of marginalized communities or within marginalized communities is inherently unequal to speech uh, by not uh, engaged in by non-marginalized communities. It says, the ACLU's decision to offer legal support to a right-wing cause than a left-wing cause won't make the speech equal. Rather, it perpetuates a misguided theory that all radical views are equal, and it fuels right-wing free speech hypocrisy. Perhaps most painful, it continues, it also redistributes some of the substantial funds the organization has received to fight white supremacy toward defending that cause. How do you respond to that idea that inherent, there are un, inherent inequalities among speakers? That is precisely the reason why the viewpoint neutrality principle is so easy. Essential, given the inequalities of political power and material resources, the ones who are the voices who are going to suffer the first and the most are precisely the voices of the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the disempowered. You know, I thought it, I read some of the comments to that op-ed in the New York Times yesterday. It had over 2,000 as of this morning. And, and, the, and the ones that I saw were overwhelmingly supportive of the ACLU, including some people who said, thank you for telling me that that is mutually defending free speech and opposing government censorship. I'm going to join, <laughs> or I'm going to increase my contribution. But, you know, the ones that I liked the most were the ones that were saying, so you're complaining about a government that can't distinguish pro-racist speech from anti-racist speech, and you want to get to that government power to censor ideas that, that it dislikes? So, I mean, you know, I completely accept the premise, as does the ACLU, which 
as the op-ed acknowledged, uh, spends a tremendous the bulk of our resources in you know fighting discrimination on on every front for you know every uh, group that's subject to discrimination in this society and you know issues going beyond like mass incarceration and immigration violations and you know huge equal equal rights um, uh, agenda, uh, but it is pre. Precisely in order to, uh, so precisely because there is so much ongoing discrimination, including discrimination in the criminal justice system, in the civil justice system, implicit unconscious bias on the part of individuals. The last thing we want to do is hand over to a discriminatory power system and justice system, uh, the power to pick and choose whose ideas to approve and whose ideas to censor. And it's, you know, so the very theory, uh, theoretical premise that underlies the argument to me is its best refutation. And then we can look to history. I mean, the history, starting with the abolitionist movement, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the LGBT rights movement, every single one of those movements critically depended on the most robust freedom of speech that extended to ideas that were detested and disturbing and feared by the powers that be. And, you know, that's why Martin Luther King wrote his historic letter from a Birmingham jail, Mm -hmm. uh, by the way. Yeah, well, the critics of the ACLU here seem to fall into two camps. Uh, One camp being those who aren't familiar with the ACLU's history and are sort of taken aback to hear stories about one of its chapters defending the right of assembly for a white supremacist group. And then there are others who are familiar with that history but believe that the ACLU should change its position. The board member of the ACLU of Virginia, for example, who resigned said, what's legal and what's right are sometimes different and the organization can't facilitate Nazis murdering people. Oh, yes. So here is a critical distinction and a basic free speech principle. It should go without saying, but apparently not. There is a critical, material, legal, and constitutional distinction between vile words, which are constitutionally protected, and violent conduct, which is not constitutionally protected and is completely illegal. So uh, if, but only if, speech directly causes imminent violent conduct uh, and intentionally does so, then government may suppress the speech. But again, to go back to these great Supreme Court uh, opinions from early in the 20th century, great opinions by uh, Justices Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis, which were accepted in, uh, uh, at the height of the civil rights movement by the Warren Court, when uh, the people who were being censored were mostly uh, civil rights protesters, but occasionally some, you know, KKK and, and right-wingers, but the same principles apply, that government may suppress speech only in an emergency when necessary to 
prevent violence or some other harmful illegal conduct. Uh, and government has to suppress speech as the last resort. It, the first uh, step should be law enforcement to prevent the violence, to protect people against violence. Uh, and I, I, I don't know enough of the facts in the Charlottesville situation, but there have been allegations that uh, law enforcement did not do all it could have to prevent the violence. Do you think then talking about the ACLU of Virginia's decision to step in in the uh, alt-right rally, allowing it to go forward <clears throat> at Man- Emancipation Park, do you think that was the right call? Some context here for our listeners. The rally was being held at Emancipation Park because there was a statue of General Lee, General Robert E. Lee, that was um, situated there and that the city of Charlottesville was discussing taking down. So the white supremacist group, in protest of that decision, wanted to hold their rally in that park. Just before the rally was set to take place, it was a permitted rally. The city had already approved it. The city decided, citing security concerns, to move it to a park one mile away. The ACLU of Virginia and the Rutherford Institute filed suit, and then a judge, Judge Glenn E. Conrad, said that he granted the injunction because testimony indicated that the organizer could successfully prove that the city revoked his original permit based on his ideas. Do you think the ACLU of Virginia got it right there? Uh, that's an excellent description, and I, am, I have no independent knowledge of the facts, so I certainly trust the integrity of my ACLU colleagues, uh, that they would not have made this argument if they did not, uh, were not persuaded that there was no physical safety danger that could not be averted through usual law enforcement techniques, and I certainly believe that the federal judge in good faith made that ruling. I have no independent knowledge of the facts, but more important than the facts, Nico, is the principle. And I don't think that there was any disagreement on the principle on either side. Uh, The principle is, and again, I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself, but uh, if necessary to prevent an emergency, if the only way to prevent violence was to separate the groups and to relocate the the demonstration, uh, then that would have been warranted. But uh, the uh, the counter argument uh, and and the counter version of the facts was that uh, the protesters against the, the 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 protesters against the removal of the monument, uh, so the so-called alt right, and uh, I think I, I read something in the Associated Press this morning that said we should not use that term uh, because it masks what their real agenda is, right? So the white supremacists and the white nationalists, the so-called alt right. Um, that they were being disfavorably treated in contrast to the counter-protesters who were getting their venue of choice because of disagreement with and disapproval of their messages. So if the government's motivation in deciding where they could and could not demonstrate was discrimination against their ideas, that's unconstitutional. That violates the viewpoint neutrality principle. If the government genuinely had a good faith law enforcement concern and there was really no other way 
to prevent the violence and to protect public safety, then it would satisfy the emergency test and it would be constitutionally permissible. So I think there's wide agreement, if not complete agreement, on the governing principles, but debate about what were the actual facts here. In an advanced democracy where we've cut resources, I mean, Charlottesville is not an impoverished community, I think we we really have to um, channel our law enforcement resources into making sure that free speech can go forward, hand-in-hand uh, hand with public safety. And it's one thing of course, to discuss this in the context of established legal principles. I want to take head on, though, the arguments of would-be censors or critics of the First Amendment that, okay, we grant you that these legal principles are well-established, but we argue that the legal principles should change. They're more making moral arguments. And here, the one that I'm seeing percolate so often on my social media news feeds is that there's something inherently violent about expression from Nazis and that that inherently violent speech will result in violence. How do you respond to that argument? Because that seems to be where free speech advocates need to direct their attention right now. First and foremost, Nico, I would be the very last person to say, oh, we've got to accept First Amendment doctrine because it's established and that's what the Supreme Court has decreed. Of course not. I mean, we didn't accept Brown versus Board of, I'm sorry, we didn't accept Plessy versus Ferguson, and we worked to get Brown versus Board of Education to overturn it. So I, I And you did the same thing. The ACLU did the same thing early in its history with free speech jurisprudence. I mean, that was its raison d'etre, so to speak. Exactly. So, um, I, I, again, I welcome the opportunity to explain why on rethinking and revisiting, I, and as somebody who is passionately committed uh, to equality and to societal peace and justice, and by the way, I should interject, I really do have personal skin in this game. My father is a Holocaust survivor. Uh, who was liberated from the Buchenwald concentration camp by American troops one day before he was scheduled to be sterilized. My entire, he was a so-called half-Jew, which they called it a Jew of the second degree under the Nuremberg laws, product of a mixed marriage, uh, and he was also politically active against Hitler. So I literally owe my entire existence to um, uh, the, the defeat of Nazism. By the way, you know, <laughs> defining what is Nazi speech is not so easy. This morning I saw uh, on one of my favorite websites called OnlineCensorship.org that um, one of the in the wake of the Charlottesville disaster. Uh, one of the videos that was going viral on YouTube was of American troops after defeating the Nazis in World War II, uh, striking down and destroying huge swastika statues. It's very similar to the attacks on the uh, on the Confederate monuments that we've seen, or the removals of the Confederate yeah. monuments in this country. And and what, those were going viral until they were taken down. And now you try to see a video of American troops destroying Nazi swastika monuments, and you get the, that message that says, 
we're sorry this has been taken down because it violates our policy on hate speech. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna take on this. Uh, we're gonna investigate the the use of sort of vague speech codes by social media sites in a future episode. Jeff, Jeffrey Rosen, the president of the National Constitution Center and past guest on this podcast, has written a lot about that. He wrote probably the most influential article about it called The Delete Squad, I believe, back in 2014. But how do we look at this? Oh, right. So I got, so, you know, there are so yeah. many questions are, there's, and there raises so many in, interrelated points. If I were convinced that censoring Nazi speech would have prevented the Holocaust, would have prevented my father from going into a concentration camp, I would say, let's censor it, right? You know, I'm not like Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. I think you need to be alive in order to enjoy liberty. Uh, But I am absolutely convinced from studying the history in Nazi Germany, as well as in this country, that censoring so-called hate speech, I say so-called because there's no official uh, consensus legal definition, censoring whatever speech we hate does more harm than good. Many people are not aware of the fact that uh, the Weimar Republic, predating the rise of Hitler, uh, did in Germany, did have hate speech laws, and they were enforced uh, against the Nazis. Many of them spent time in prison, and, uh, and they welcomed these trials. They became big propaganda platforms for them, just the way censorship in this country has operated. I knew people that as recently as, as January, February, had never even heard of Milo. And guess what? When uh, Berkeley and others tried to suppress his speech, suddenly he gets all over the news, and he becomes a free speech martyr, a cause celeb, and everybody knows him. And he has more of a platform to spread his hateful messages. And And, you know, this is the flip side of the point I made at the beginning, Nico, which is, If the hatred and the racism and these groups exist, I want to know about it. How are we most effectively or effectively at all going to be able to refute their ideas, uh, to organize against their having any influence on public policy, to monitor them, to make sure they don't engage in violence or discrimination? How can we do that if we're, you know, suppressing them and and relegating them to the dark corners of, of, of the Internet? Yeah, you make so many good points there, and a lot of points I want to unpack. The first being the argument toward Nazism uh, or Godwin's law that exists even in free speech debates. And you and I are both very familiar with R.E.A. Nyer and his seminal book, Defending My Enemy. And in that book, he presents a very good case why free speech wasn't the cause of the rise of Hitler. He talks, like you, like you just did, about the speech codes that existed in Weimar Germany and how they were used to punish Nazis and how the Nazis then used that punishment for PR campaigns, turning their jailed comrades into martyrs. He talks about how Bavaria, for example, uh, they banned hit, uh, speeches by Hitler in 1925, and the Nazi party seized on that ban and said – put out a campaign that said one alone of 200 billion people of the world is forbidden to speak in Germany. And of course, the ban was soon lifted. Arya Nair goes on 
to talk about how the lesson of Germany in the 1920s is that a free society cannot be established and maintained if it will not act vigorously and forcefully to punish political violence. The implication being there, of course, that it wasn't the speech necessarily that was causing, that caused the rise of Hitler. It was the political violence that was coupled with it that went unpunished during Weimar journey. Absolutely. The Nazis got away with murder, and that is literal. They murdered and, and otherwise physically assaulted and injured their political opponents, Jews Ran and other minorities. Newspapers. And and Ari and by the way, if your listeners don't know, uh, Ari Nair was the executive director of the ACLU during the famous Skokie trial, and he himself is a Holocaust survivor. He, as a young child. He was born in Berlin, uh, and as a young child, he, he and his immediate family escaped from Nazi Germany, ultimately ended up in the United States. But his extended family was completely assassinated by the Nazis. And he, you know, everybody knows him rightly and celebrates him as this great free speech champion. The book is wonderful. Uh, but he says exactly what I did. He said, if I thought that censoring hate speech or Nazi speech would have prevented the Holocaust, sign me up. I'd be the first one to support it. So it is not only for abstract devotion to freedom of speech, but for the for, for an additional reason, because of a very concrete commitment to the sanctity of life uh, and the equal sanctity of life for those of us who have been, or uh, ourselves and our families and ancestors have been persecuted uh, because of hatred on the basis of race, religion, and so forth. You know, we cling to freedom of speech as, as minorities. We can never depend on political power. Uh, so we have to depend on uh, the, our right, even as members of minorities, to raise our voices and to be able to do so without being subject to, to violence. I mean, that's another form of censorship, right? Uh, the the anti-Nazi speech was also censored because the Nazi violence went unpunished. And uh, Arie draws a very good parallel in his book. He says the analogy would have been if during the civil rights movement here, the murderers of Medgar Evers and Martin Luther King and, and others had not been punished. And sadly, uh, too many of them were, in fact, punished uh, too little too late by state and local officials. But fortunately, we had the federal government stepping in to protect physical safety. Yeah, I, that's, I love those points. But I love the point that you made earlier about how it's important to know who the Nazis are. Uh, Fire co-founder uh, Harvey Silverglate always says that it, he's himself Jewish. He always says that it's important to know who the Nazis are in the room so he knows not to turn his back to him. And, <laughs> and, and you know, it's easy to get into a my, myopic perspective where you only look at freedom of speech from a practical, tactical concern. The idea is that we were just talking to about, of course, fit into there, the idea that the best way to prevent a future Holocaust is to support free speech principles. It's the best tactic. But you, you were talking earlier, of course, about the use of knowledge in society and the role that knowledge plays in society and the importance of knowing who these Nazis are. Greg Lukianoff, the president of FIRE, always talks about big T and little t truths, you know, big T truths being the philosophical truths that we, all, we so often debate. But 
small t truths being those truths just about the world that you know that my uh, the chair I'm sitting on is stable, but also that this person believes that and this other person believes this. And it's important to know what people believe, and especially if it's bigoted or racist or sexist, because if we censor that speech, then we don't know we have a problem that we need to confront. There's so yeah, there's so many. That that's one of the many. We've talked about multiple adverse impacts of of censorship. And I would say I have not given up on haters. I mean, one of the uh, most inspiring types of uh, information that I've been reading in the past year, I've been uh, working on a book on this uh, topic. Uh, The working title right now is, is Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. When does that come out, Nadine? Uh, sometime in 2018, it's Oxford University Press, uh, so academic presses uh, do a thorough vetting job, and uh, but time will fly between now and when it's available. Uh, one of the most inspiring um, things that I've learned from my reading, Nico, is, is how successful efforts have been by various organizations to uh, recruit people away from hate organizations. Many of them are staffed by people who were themselves. Uh, very deeply embedded and engrossed in these organizations. We should not give up on them. Uh, these people are redeemable. They're very inspiring stories about uh, how they have changed, how they're stop helping now to uh, uh, to stop the recruitment of other young people into their ranks. Uh, they're providing educational resources for family members who who might have uh, hate mongers among their among their family members. And if we instead treat these people as as unredeemable criminals, then that's only going to harden their hatred. I was so heartened to read that in the wake of the Charlottesville um, killings and and violence, that uh, the most tweeted message or the most popular and the most retweeted in history was Barack Obama who was in turn quoting Nelson Mandela, and Mandela said it so eloquently, my paraphrase is going to be weak, but basically nobody is born hating other people because of the color of their skin. Hatred is learned, and if hatred can be learned, love can be learned. And, and I, I was happy to see very inspiring stories where that has actually come to pass. And that's, uh, we give that up if and we treat these people as criminals. Yeah, and we addressed the power of debate and dialogue to transcend ideological differences on this podcast. I'm thinking back to our episode with Daryl Davis. He's a black man who in the 1980s wanted to answer a question. How can you hate me if you don't even know me? And to answer that question, he went and interviewed Klansmen to try and get their perspective on why they hate him. And he found that during the course of his interviews and conversations with these Klansmen, the cement in their brain that held their bigotry together was slowly cracking, and then it started to crumble, and then it dissipated. And today, he has dozens of Klan robes that sit in his garage from former Klansmen that he's befriended and gave him their robes. So there is a power of in debate and dialogue and that's an important thing that we 
that we should remember about this debate. And, and censorship just short circuits that valuable tool to defeat racism and bigotry. And if, I, if I could say, you know, so many of the people on um, the left, and, you know, by any definition, I'm considered and consider myself to be on the left. Uh, all of us thinking people don't toe any particular party line. Uh, we have independent views on, on many issues, but, but, but I, I generally am in political sync with them. And, and, and they and I very strongly criticize criminalization of drugs, criminalization of, of, of many anti social acts that are not good for individuals, that are not good for families, that are, are not good for society. But we say you shouldn't treat it as a crime. Incarceration is not the right way to go. And it is disproportionately used against um, members of racial minorities, in particular African-American men. So we should be negatively disposed in general toward criminalizing uh, another form of antisocial conduct. I think that, and Barack Obama has been so eloquent on this as well, and heaven knows he's been the target of vicious, vitriolic hate speech of many stripes because he's a Muslim, right? <laughs> because of his race and, and, and so forth. Uh, and he is constantly saying counter speech and education is by far the most effective response to the haters themselves, to the disparaged people coming from the disparaged people themselves, to people in the community who might be tempted to uh, be persuaded by, for all of those different audiences and constituencies, it's more empowering, more transforming, uh, a more effective way of combating hatred and discrimination and violence is through more speech and censorship is counterproductive. I want to talk a little bit about the history of the ACLU, given that the ACLU is so much a part of this conversation in Charlottesville. And we had discussed already a lack of understanding on the part of some, but not all, of the history of the ACLU's defense of viewpoint-neutral free speech principles. I took the occasion of Charlottesville to look back at the uh, first annual report of the ACLU, which was, a, <laughs> which was the fight for free speech, the second annual report being a year in the fight for free speech. And then Aryeh Nair talks about in his book how in 1940, the ACLU released a leaflet at the height of Nazism, communism, and Jim Crow in the South that was entitled why we defend civil, li civil liberty, even for Nazis, fascists, and communists. And that defense often throughout the ACLU's history resulted in board resignations or a number of people, I think it was something like 30,000 people in the 1970s during the Skokie case, giving up their ACLU memberships. But the ACLU has always seemed to weather it and it was always stuck close to those principles Yes, uh, at the uh, in the Skokie uh, incident in 1977-78, and I think we haven't told people that the particular wrinkle there was that Skokie, Illinois, where this group of neo-Nazis wanted to have a uh, peaceful demonstration um, displaying placards. Interestingly enough, their placards said things like free speech for white people, 
kind of interesting because free speech, again, has become a, a mantra uh, for some race haters. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, Skokie, Illinois, was a town that had a very large Jewish population. The entire, the entire population was 70,000, of which 40,000 were Jews, and of those... 5,000 were Holocaust survivors. So this was particularly poignant. The march was going to be across from City Hall, so, you know, not a residential neighborhood. Nobody had to see it. Interestingly enough, the initial response of the uh, town officials and of the established Jewish organizations and leaders was, let them go. You know, don't give, that was their, uh, you know, the Anti-Defamation League, the American Jewish Committee, the American Jewish Congress. Their strategy was exactly what the Southern Poverty Law Center is advocating now, which is don't give them the attention. Just ignore them. You know, don't, don't, that what they want is confrontation. Confrontation either through a legal battle or confrontation on the street. So deny them that platform. But anyway, because of the emotional appeal of some of the Holocaust survivors, uh, Skokie passed these laws to, to stifle the Nazis. And about 15% uh, and the ACLU came to the defense of the First Amendment. I really resist saying, because I think it's inaccurate, the ACLU was defending the Nazis or the ACLU was defending Milo or the communists, pick your poison. Uh, no, we are defending a principle that redounds to the benefit of everybody, including, by the way, Black Lives Matter protesters, because many people consider them to be a hate group and to engage in, in, in hate speech and hate crimes. Uh, but then, despite the resignation of 15% or, you know, a few people, and I don't mean to, to trivialize it, but they perhaps did not understand what the mission of the ACLU is, and they should not be members. But then we garner other people who say, oh, we understand you really are neutrally defending freedom for everybody, including freedom for the thought that you hate, including freedom for anti-civil liberties principles. We think it's really important, essential to have an organization that does that. And, and Nico, I have to say something else. You know, I talk about the power of counter speech. Uh, it's our right to choose to engage in it or not, as with all speech. But I do feel a moral obligation as somebody who is defending freedom for hate speech, I feel that I have a moral, a special moral duty to always denounce the ideas. And that fact, that idea is actually in the ACLU policy guide. You know, at the very same policy which says we defend freedom for the thought we hate also says, but we should be out there, you know, raising our voices to denounce the message that they're using their free speech to purvey. Do you think that poses a challenge for civil liberty advocates, though, opining on the content of speech and not just whether it's protected or not. The, the, the struggle we here have, have here at FIRE and the reason we don't go that next step that the ACLU has is because we want speakers of all stripes to be able to come to us to vindicate the, their civil liberties. And the idea being that if we speak negatively about one speaker or another or opine on one idea or another. One, will be expected to always opine on the content of speech. Mm -hmm. And two, that those speakers then won't come to us as a civil liberties organization for help. Those are, 
those are serious concerns, but I would um, make one important distinction between the ACLU and FIRE and then make one practical observation. So uh, the important distinction is that your mandate, which is incredibly important, uh, is narrower in scope than the ACLU. That's true. Because you are, and whereas we, we're out there to defend all fundamental freedoms for all people, so we are fully as committed to equality values and non-discrimination as we are to freedom of speech. So the distinction is that if the speaker is uh, violating or advocating against the very civil liberties that we are are championing, uh, then it behooves us in a way that it's not just randomly picking, I like this idea and I really detest this idea. Uh, the second practical observation is is based on uh, current events as well as longstanding history, which is despite all of the denunciations, they know they get excellent legal representation plus probably you know uh, added media buzz uh, by coming to the ACLU to to represent them. So we never have any shortage of people of every ideological stripe uh, seeking ACLU representation. I remember uh, some years ago there was a New York Times story about the ACLU that was uh, focusing on some, I think it was, uh, we were representing students at the, representing free speech as uh, exercised by students at the Dartmouth Review, a conservative publication, and the ACLU successfully defended its free speech rights and due process rights. And um, and, and then the editor-in-chief of the Dartmouth Review was asked by the New York Times reporter, well, would you consider joining the ACLU? And he said, no, are you kidding? They represent communists. <laughs> so, you know, everybody wants us for, and I'm sure FIRE has this experience too, to defend their rights, but they hate the fact that we're defending that other person's rights. Well, I, 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 I always think, and I've learned throughout my career defending free speech rights, that many people, that being a civil liberties advocate takes a certain amount of education because the censorship instinct, I think Nat Nat Hentoff said, is like the the foremost instinct and sex is the distant second. You know, throughout history, uh, censorship has been the norm and it's only recently that free speech has been uh, a fundamental, fundamental value for us so, you know, there is that tribal instinct that is inherent in us, and it takes a special sort of person to be able to put put their their hatred of certain viewpoints aside in order to, to defend that neutral principle. And it takes a certain amount of education to understand the tactical importance of that. There was a tweet that was going around on Twitter, a Twitter poll, so to speak, where uh, a person asked, who do you think is more likely to get censored under a regime that censor, censors that has the tools to censor hateful speech? Black Lives Matter or white supremacists? Mm-hmm. And I think, at least under knowing the current administration, and it could change under future administrations, Black Lives Matter is m- more more likely to be enforced against using a hate speech code in the United States today than a white supremacist group. So we need to be careful of that. We also need to just, of course, be careful of who we're calling Nazis and how how vague that term or any term that you would use to undergird a hate speech code would be. There was another interesting tweet that was going around that said, you know, 
if you're going to call for censoring Nazis, you should be careful to not in your second breath call everyone a Nazi. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's, it's a difficult instinct to, or difficult process to come to terms with this counterintuitive or radically I completely agree with that. Idea of free speech. And the one thing I would amplify on is the people who understand that are not special people. They are especially educated or perhaps aware because of their own personal experiences. Uh, so many people I know who have been subject to censorship themselves because somebody finds their cherished idea to be detestable in a particular community, suddenly it's like a light bulb going off. In fact, the ACLU would periodically get letters of people saying, oh, you know, because I was supporting affirmative action, I was uh, uh, on my campus, I was, I was shut down, and, and now I understand why uh, government shouldn't have power to pick and choose. And uh, so that's why what you're doing in, through these podcasts and other educational outreach is so important as well writing my book because, I mean, one of the things that public opinion surveys show or public just surveys of people's knowledge is most people don't even know what the First Amendment is about. And I, through many, many years of speaking and, and writing, I find the more people understand uh, about the underlying principles and, and the more they think it through and the more examples they're given, uh, the more supportive they become. I want to finish here with a discussion of the latest policy announcement from the ACLU. Now, I, of course, know that you probably weren't involved in that. Uh, you left your presidency uh, in, 2008. in 2008, almost 10 years ago. Um, but there was a headline in the Wall Street Journal last night that the ACLU will no longer defend hate groups protesting with firearms. What are your thoughts on that decision? Uh, I, for, I, it's the first I hear about it. Uh, so just based on that headline, I would need to know more, and again, I'll do as I did earlier in this interview, uh, state what the governing principle would be, which is uh, if the speech is presenting an emergency, and in for example, an intentional incitement of violence that is uh, imminently going to happen and likely to happen, that would satisfy the emergency exception. Another exception is what's called, or another example of speech that satisfies the emergency test is a what the law calls a true threat. Not, you know, the way we loosely use the term threat in everyday life. Uh, but if the expression would instill in a reasonable observer, that is, you know, it's an objective test, it's not a subjective test, a fear that violence is going to happen. And if the person engaging the expression uh, means to instill that reasonable fear, they don't have to intend to actually commit the violence, but they do have to intend to instill the fear because that itself is a serious harm, right? If you feel threatened, it's going to hamper your freedom of movement and your freedom of speech. So it seems to me that, you know, that's to me an interesting kind of factual question. If somebody brandishing a, a firearm uh, 
instilling a reasonable fear. I have to say, I would feel afraid if I'm, I don't think I would counter demonstrate against somebody who's armed with a weapon. So that would be violating my freedom of speech. So that's the principle. Uh, and I need to know more details to know whether the, the policy and, and, you know, the facts uh, accord with that principle. Yeah, I'm not going to put you on the spot here to uh, either defend or criticize the, la- the latest ACLU no, policy. That, I mean, so I'd be curious, do you, do you agree with me on, on the principle and that that could satisfy the definition of a truth, the appropriate standard for a truth threat? I would need. I think it would require a very co- careful factual analysis. I'm yeah, thinking exactly. back. To, I'm thinking back to uh, Virginia v. Black, of course, yeah. where uh, look, that involved. Uh, but the, the so a lot of the arguments that I've seen against uh, protesters with firearms, or at least giving them First Amendment protection, is that the carrying of a firearm is prima facie intimidation, regardless of the intent of actually carrying the firearm. And Virginia B. Black, of course, said that burning a cross can't be prima facie evidence of intent. You have to lay completely, and you know the ACLU was handling that case. Of course. We were making that argument uh, that, and, and, and the, the genuine threat concept is appropriately very fact specific. So even in Virginia V. Black, I think that case itself involved two different uh, factual situations of cross-burning, and, 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 and each one had to be analyzed differently, looking at all the facts and circumstances and how would a reasonable person feel. Um, so I think we both agree on the principles and that we need to know more facts. Yeah, and there, there's also a unique tension. Whatever you or anyone else thinks about the Second Amendment and how the courts have interpreted that, uh, in Virginia, there is a statutory right to open carry firearms. Exactly, uh, and there's all, the court has recognized a constitutional right to own firearms, not necessarily a constitutional right to carry them. So the First Amendment is in tension there with statutory and perhaps constitutional concerns. And the issue for any court is how to grapple with the First Amendment's tension with those. You know, notice the difference between people who say, you were asking some questions about this earlier, Nico, uh, that words can cause violence. Yes, but it's a much more attenuated, indirect chain than a person carrying a firearm. And, and even there, I understand, I know the NRA and other advocates of gun owners' rights say, you know, people, guns don't kill, guns don't kill, people kill. Uh, but people can kill much more directly through guns than they can through words. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an interesting question. And I think one that's going to play out more and more, I think a important point to note about this this Charlottesville case is that the guns were actually were never actually used. I, I heard reports that they were brandished mm-hmm. um, and used as threats, and that would probably be a uh, unlawful if it wasn't in self defense. Uh, so it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see see how this all play this all plays out. Um, this is new and novel. Um, you know, the Nazis never ended up marching on Skokie, so we never got to see how violence or guns played into the calculus there after the fact. And, and it's it's so interesting because uh, I, I was just rereading those Skokie decisions in light of current events, and I was amazed to see that the parade permit that they sought was for a parade that would last twenty to thirty minutes 
And they estimated that, and I'm sure it was a wildly exaggerated estimate, that there would be 30 to 50 uh, Nazis marching. And that would have been just invisible if it had not been for the effort to censor them, which gained them worldwide publicity, literally worldwide publicity for two years. Yeah, I'm partial to agree with you and the the Southern Poverty Law Center here that giving these Nazis so much attention uh, creates the Streisand effect where the message gets gets amplified. I saw reports that said there were more reporters in Charlottesville than there were actual Nazis and that those Nazis that were there, the neo-Nazis, white supremacists, white nationalists, alt-right, whatever you want to call them, uh, had to fly in from all across the country. If you look at some of the names of the people that were doxxed and where they came from, and also the killer who uh, mowed down a bunch of counter peaceful com- counter-protesters, uh, they all came from different states. I mean, it's, if this is the best that they can do, the most they can garner from an, a national rally, then... Um, my hope is that we would just ignore them and that the counter the counter um, demonstrators will continue to you know speak out against this hate in other ways in other ways and i since fire focuses on campuses i assume you've seen uh, the southern poverty law center just issued a, a guidance to campus um, and to students in particular what to do if a white supremacists are coming to your campus because they're making a big effort to recruit on college campuses. And they have many constructive suggestions of what students and other concerned community members could do. That is not confrontational, but it's an affirmative way of, of defeating the message of the haters and, and more, more affirmatively, you know, promoting equality and diversity and inclusion. And more affirmatively, not censoring their message as well. Uh Uh Uh, They make very explicit there the rights guaranteed under the First Amendment. So, yeah, I I have seen that guide, and I would encourage all of our listeners to check it out. I haven't read it super closely, but from what I did see, it seemed to be a very positive contribution to the conversation. Nadine, I want to close up here by getting your general thoughts about where the state of free speech is in the court of public opinion, or if you if you could uh, anthropomorphize free speech as a person, how is that person standing up right now uh, to the onslaught of criticism that has that has come after Charlottesville? I would say I'm not a medical expert, so my terminology is not going to be great. But I, as I, given my rudimentary medical knowledge, I would say it's like getting, uh, having some physical injury that when you overcome, you do more than heal. You are even stronger than you were before the injury. That's that's a metaphor that occurs to me. Well, Nicholas Nassim Taleb uh, wrote a book called Anti-Fragile, where he makes that exact point. It's, you know, like uh, there's a, there are some ideas and there are some things that are like bones. When they receive more stress, they grow stronger. Oh, I confess I didn't read that. I will have to. But I, I truly mean it, because what can kill free speech more than anything is apathy and ignorance. And as you and I were talking earlier, 
uh, lack of understanding, lack of thinking, lack of discussion, lack of debate. So I see this as a teachable moment for uh, those of us who passionately believe that free speech is the only effective way to counter racism and hatred of every sort. This is We're being given a golden opportunity to make that case. Uh, I love that optimistic note. I'm having a hard time saying I'm as optimistic, maybe because it's we're in the immediate fallout of what happened in Charlottesville, and I'm very tied into social I'm media because of my you. job. You, know, I'm <laughs> you have more perspective than I do. Skokie itself, so you know I've got a historic basis for optimism. Yeah, Greg and I are working on an op-ed. Greg Lukianoff and I are working on an op-ed. An optimism ed. <laughs> yeah, well, we're working on this op-ed where we quote Learned Hand, who says uh, that when the idea of liberty dies in the heart. There's no constitution, there's no law that can save it. And then we go on to say that there's evidence right now that freedom of speech needs a pacemaker, <laughs> to use another medical <laughs> analogy. But I hope you are right and that we are wrong and that this, and I think it, it's probably best served to look at the events of the past week as an opportunity to get the free speech message out there and not as a full frontal attack, assault, and a wounding uh, strike against the First of First Amendment. Here, here. So Nadine Strawson, thank you again for coming on the show. It's been a great pleasure, and you provide some much-needed perspective to this conversation, and I hope everyone will read your book when it comes out next year, because I'm sure that will provide even more perspective on this issue. Well, I have to ask you, when, when did you decide to write this? Was there any event that that prompted it? That's an excellent question, Nico, because I have been advocating freedom of speech for hate speech very vigorously, starting with the Skokie crisis, which occurred shortly after I had graduated from law school and became an active ACLU volunteer. And then through the advent of the first speech codes, which in part gave uh, rise to, uh, to fire, so that's very important in your own organizational history. And I just, you know, this was going on for decades. At that point, it was a big chunk of my life, and I didn't feel that there were any new arguments that I could make. I didn't feel there were any new arguments the other side could make. And I said, you know, enough, let other people carry the torch. Fire's doing a great job. But then about two years ago, probably in the wake of the Ferguson and the demonstrations at the University of Missouri, where you, I was on the one hand as a student activist myself on behalf of racial and social justice. On the one hand, I was so heartened by the rise of activism on campus for those causes, but so disheartened that so many of the students and faculty members and others saw free speech as an enemy, not an ally. And then I thought, you know, despite everything I and other people have said and argued and written and declaimed, we clearly have not been persuasive enough. We have not been effective enough educators. So let me try again to make the case more persuasively than I have made it in the past. And I have to say, in the process of writing the book and thinking about it, I have made more persuasive arguments to myself. And 
Uh, also, um, the intervening developments have been very eye-opening because in the interim, we have Euro- European countries and Australia and Canada and New Zealand and South Africa, many advanced democracies uh, implementing hate speech laws, and the consequences have been catastrophic for equality causes as well as for freedom of speech. So there's a lot of empirical evidence in there bolstering, you know, the more theoretical, logical arguments that you and I were and historical arguments that you and I were exchanging that if you care about equal rights and ending violence and discrimination and intergroup hatred, censorship is not the way to go. Well, I think that's a great place to end there, Nadine. I encourage everyone to check out your book when it comes out next year. And in the meantime, keep up the fantastic work. I appreciate you joining with me today. And hopefully we won't have to have this conversation (laughs) next week because there's some new free speech flashpoint. I'm always uh, happy to talk to you, Nico. Thank you and fire for your wonderful work. All right. Thank you very much. That was former ACLU president and New York law professor Nadine Strawson. Her book, due out next year, is called Hate, Why We Should Resist It With Free Speech, Not Censorship. This podcast is hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please, 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 I implore you, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast. Reviews, of course, as I've mentioned before, help us attract new listeners to this show. We'll be back on schedule with our next episode. And until then, I thank you again for listening.